Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. Did Joe Biden rape Tara Reid? That's a very, very big question. And it has uh, caused multiple problems now for the Democratic Party, which in other circumstances, one would have thought would have been skating towards a presidential victory in November. After all, Donald Trump increasingly unhinged at the dispatch box in the press briefing room on the uh, Twitter uh, handle that has become notorious across the world. You would not have thought that such a man would have any chance at all uh, of being re-elected in November. Uh, But the reality is, for the second time running, the Democrats have picked probably the one person in America that could lose to Donald Trump. It's not just his record of support for the Iraq war and then lying about it. It's not just his track record of being actually perpetually lying about one thing or another. He was even forced out of a previous presidential primary race because he was caught lying and plagiarizing. So we're not talking about a man with any reputation to defend as a paragon of truthfulness. It's not just his deliberate courting of the worst racists in America, Storm Thurmond and the segregationists of his past. It's not just uh, that he boasted about having written the Patriot Act which has caused so much grief and oppression uh, for people all across America. It's not just his long record of shilling for corporations, of shifting the Democratic Party to the right. It's not even just the fact that he now cannot appear in public without his long-suffering wife, or is it his sister? I don't know. He doesn't know at his side. It's not just the fact that he can't even read now an autocue. It's not just the fact that he's visibly melting in front of our eyes. It's not just the fact that his teeth shot out and across the studio floor during one of the earlier debates in the primary season. Not just that blood comes from his eye on television. It's the fact that he has quite clearly mentally degenerated at such a rapid pace that frankly, you'd have to have your head examined to consider him a credible candidate for the presidency. And then along comes this. Tara Reid made credible accusations of sexual offenses against the Democratic Party's candidate for the presidency in November. 
We know that because she's not just making them now. We know that because she made them at the time. We know that because she made them to her neighbor at the time. We know that because her mother called Larry King live on CNN back then, decades ago, before anyone could have possibly imagined that this corpse would be dug up and put forward as the Democratic Party hopeful. So quite clearly, evidently, whatever allegations she's making, she's not making them because he's the candidate against Donald Trump because she made them decades before that was even imaginable. It's pretty unimaginable now. Now, one of the few journalists who has made this story into what I suspect will become this story in the downfall of Joe Biden as the Democratic Party's nominee is our old friend Katie Halper. Mind you, uh, the surrogate for Joe Biden has just called for her and Rolling Stone magazine to be prosecuted by the FBI for telling us about uh, allegations made by a woman who claims to have been sexually assaulted. Whatever happened to the pussy hat brigade? Whatever happened to the liberal nostrum uh, that uh, women must be believed? Whatever happened to the Me Too movement? Whatever happened to the pussy hatted Washington Post, the pussy hatted uh, uh, Huffington Post? Whatever happened to the ranks? serried ranks of liberals who told us, told us in the case of Julian Assange, uh, that women had to be believed, that women could not be guilty of inventing allegations of sexual malfeasance by prominent people. They had to be believed. Now, these same liberals are backing Joe Biden. Imagine the pussy hats for Joe Biden. And they don't want to know about the woman who's making the allegations. Well, Katie Halper and those few other journalists and correspondents who have followed this show, Chris Hayes belatedly, for example, they tried to get him sacked for doing so too. Uh, these people uh, are owed a debt of gratitude by all of us. Because we wouldn't want a rapist in the White House, would we? Oh, wait. You know, I think it actually speaks greater volume than anything I could say about the decline and fall of the American empire than that the current lineup for president is Donald Trump against Joe Biden. Nothing I could say could be more damning of the fading, failing American empire than that. The American people deserve much better. Last time I was forced uh, on my media platforms and so on to support Dr. Jill Stein uh, of the Green Party because I could not honestly ask anyone to vote for either Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton. I did make the point last time 
uh, that uh, I'm not happy that Donald Trump is the president of the United States, but I'm very happy that Hillary Clinton is not the president of the United States. And I've got to tell you, that's where I'll be in this coming contest also. Unless, unless my colleague and friend, Governor Jesse Ventura, secures the Green Party nomination, then at least I'll have someone positively to proselytize for. He is a man, a man that we'd be lucky to see in the saddle riding towards the guns. Katie Halper is my first guest coming up in just a few minutes. And I promise you, this story, whether you're in America or anywhere in the world, is of monumental importance. And there's nobody better to tell it than her. Poor Harry Dunn was mowed down at the age of 19 by a woman driving on the wrong side of the road. We know now that that woman was Anne Sekoulas, who was described rather coyly as the wife of an American diplomat who was based on a so-called Royal Air Force station nearby. We now know that her husband was not a diplomat and therefore she had no diplomatic immunity. And even if she had, that is not the purpose of diplomatic immunity, to allow criminal offenders of an ordinary kind to escape justice in a friendly, couldn't be more friendly, country here in Britain. We know now that her husband was not a diplomat, but was an intelligence operative. What an intelligence operative was doing based on an RAF station is of course a matter for speculation. We now know that Ansarkoulas was a much more senior intelligence operative than her husband. So what these two intelligence operatives were actually doing in Northamptonshire is a matter for speculation. What is not a matter for speculation is that the British government conspired with the government of the United States, with the deep state of the United States, to allow Mrs. Ansacoulas to avoid justice. And that is a crime of an altogether greater magnitude, uh, because our government, their member of parliament, owed a duty of care to Harry Dunn's family. Our government owes a duty of care, first and above all, to the people of Britain, not to the deep state of the United States, not to the government of the United States. Uh, but it failed in that duty. It prioritized the interests of the American intelligence operators involved. And it's always the cover-up, isn't it? They lied and lied and lied. They lied to Harry Dunn's parents. They lied to the public. They lied to Parliament. It's always the lying and the cover-up 
uh, that brings them down. And thanks to our guest in the second hour, Rad Saiga, the spokesperson for the Harry Dunn family, this matter is now in court, and to their credit, the mail on Sunday are doggedly pursuing this story, and we now know of an astonishing turn. The British authorities didn't just lie to the family of Harry Dunn, they lied to their own police force in Northamptonshire. They lied to the police in their own country to subvert, pervert the course of justice. It doesn't get much more serious than that. And in the second hour, we'll be talking about it. In the rest of the show, we'll be talking about two different sides of the coronavirus issue. We'll be talking to Moats Medic, our very own medical expert, Dr. Ranjit Brar, a surgeon of note, who's been with us right throughout this dreadful crisis of the coronavirus, which has now affected millions and millions of people around the world, two millions of, le uh, of which whom rather uh, have been officially recorded as having the coronavirus, 19. About many, many millions more clearly have it. And well over 100 British medical personnel have fallen at their place of work from the virulence and infectivity of this virus. It's not a joke. It's not something to call a hoax. It's not something to work yourself up into a hunt for Rothschilds or Gates or Soros or any of the usual targets of the conspiracy theory maniacs. This is deadly, deadly serious. And I spoke uh, in my short on RT this week about the dangers of sending workers back to work in the toxic, potentially fatal environment of coronavirus Britain. Uh, but we'll also be talking about another aspect, one we haven't talked about before. I don't know about you, but I won't be going back into any big crowds anytime soon. Perhaps never at all. Uh, perhaps I'll watch my football on the television uh, from now on. And indeed, that may very well be about to happen. Because there's so much money invested in professional football in Britain and around the world, there's so much money at stake uh, that the problem of unfinished leagues, cups, championships has now become a clear and present danger to the economic survival of even some of the most famous clubs. Now, Liverpool were well on their way to winning the English Premiership. Celtic were well on their way to winning the Scottish Premiership. Will both be dogged for the rest of time with an asterisk after their name for the season 2019-2020? Champions elect, but not actually champions. Or should we restart the football behind closed doors. Some people say we could have cardboard cutouts of the crowd 
like at Manchester City, for example. Uh, we could have uh, crowd noise on the television. Well, I don't know how they're going to do it, but I'm here to tell you uh, that I hope that the season can be restarted and completed because if I'm going nuts, it's the lack of football above all other things in my personal and social life that's driving me nuts. How about you? This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burroughs Memorial Day Sale at burrowcom slash ACAST. That's burrowcom slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Who should remain in lockdown indefinitely? A. Dominic Rabb. B. Joe Biden. C. David Icke. You can vote now on my Twitter poll at George Galloway. A. Dominic Rabb. Joe Biden. B. And C. David Icke. You can call in right now. The lines are open and manned. Staffed, I should say, in these politically correct times. Although it is a man that's staffing them. So I don't know. The wonderful Katie Halper is there now. Katie, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Sorry, putting on a last-minute earring. Well, I'm okay. sorry we came to you just that second too early, but you're looking wonderful, sounding wonderful. Thank uh, Thanks. Now, this is a very big story. Uh, I read last night... Uh, that the surrogate of Joe Biden is seeking to have you prosecuted uh, by the FBI. Uh, thrown investigated, in to be fair. She's being very cautious. She what? She's being very cautious, just investigated, not prosecuted yet. Ah, okay, investigated by the yeah. FBI. Uh, that's uh, rather chilling, I, I must say. But let's go back to the beginning. Uh, sure. Bear in mind that a lot of people around the world... Uh, that are watching and listening tonight don't know anything like what you know about the Tara Reid affair. So please give us uh, the basic story. Sure, and thanks so much for having me on, George. Um, basically, we now know uh, that this woman, Tara Reid, has been trying to tell her full story for about a year. She came forward in April of 2019 to say that Biden had treated her inappropriately, touched her inappropriately when she was working for him as a staff assistant in 1993. 
And she didn't say much more about that. And the context for this was that she came forward when Lucy Flores had come forward. And Lucy Flores is a Nevada politician who came forward last April to say that Biden had, right before she was making a speech, he had was standing behind her because he was about to endorse her or speak for her. He was standing behind her. He put his hands on her shoulders. He kissed the back of her head and inhaled deeply. And then she ran on to give a speech. And she came out basically to say that she had felt really uncomfortable about that. And when she did that, seven other women, including Tara Reid, came forward and said they had somewhat similar experiences. Now, Fast forward, what happens between that April and this March is that Tara Reid, um, just because she says that Biden made her feel uncomfortable, wanted her to serve drinks at an event because uh, he thought she was pretty and had nice legs, just doing that has people attack her online, suggest that she's a Russian agent. And I mean people like Harold Painter, part of the Mick Resistance, guy who worked for that hero, apparently, George W. Bush. Um, I'm talking about uh, I, Edward Isaac Dovere, this total like um, smear merchant who uh, writes hit pieces about Sanders and Sanders staff and supporters all the time. These people went online to suggest that she was working for Putin. And so the combination of that and also the trauma that many women who have been sexually assaulted go through and the fear of coming out, which is totally normal and expected, those two things combined um, prevented her from telling the rest of her story. And in fact, what she did is she wrote to a bunch of journalists, and I have seen the emails. She wrote to journalists. She wrote to politicians. She finally got in touch with Time's Up, uh, which is a foundation uh, founded precisely to support women telling in telling their Me Too stories against powerful men, to provide them with PR and legal help. So she reaches them in January after months of trying to come forward, and they are talking to her, and then all of a sudden they reveal to her that they can't actually help her because the man she's alleging is Joe Biden, and he's running for federal office, and that would jeopardize their tax-exempt status because they're a nonprofit. Now, you can find lawyers, and most of them will tell you that that's a very conservative reading of the law. And of course, what that means is that they can't protect women in telling their stories about the most powerful men, right? So this would protect not only Donald Trump, but anyone who is running for, for uh, the presidency, which is precisely the people who people need the most help with coming out to tell their stories about. Anyway, so now she's stuck, and she's desperate to tell her story, and she's, again, trying to tell the story when there are dozens of other Democrats in the race. So this is not a political operation. She's not trying to help one politician over the other. She finally um, tells her story to Ryan Grimm and to me. Ryan Grimm is this excellent journalist at The Intercept, who ironically enough, even though he's being smeared as a birdie bro, is the one who broke the Christine Blasey Ford story. And for people who know that, that's when Kavanaugh, uh, it was revealed that Dianne Feinstein was sitting on a letter from Christine Blasey Ford. Uh, in which she was alleging that he basically tried to sexually, he did sexually assault her when she was a teenager. And so let's see, did I miss anything? I interviewed Tara. I released it on my podcast. I had wanted other people to do investigations into it. No one was touching it. I wrote about this at The Guardian last week um, and how I wanted a, main, a more mainstream, reputable source to break the story about her allegations because Ryan just focused on the Time's Up aspect of it. No one would, so I would, I did. And then um, unlike the case of the Christine Blasey Ford allegation, when every single legacy, respected, respectable newspaper had reported on the story 
within a day of Ryan Grimm breaking the story. Unlike this time, it took the New York Times 19 days to write about the story. It took the Washington Post 19 or 20 days, I can't remember. The New York Times edited uh, a sentence and a tweet so it fit the desires of the Biden campaign because it initially had said that the Times found no pattern of sexual misconduct uh, except for the inappropriate, unwanted hugging, touching, et cetera. And then they took that part out of the sentence at the behest of the Biden campaign. So it just said that they found no um, evidence, no pattern of sexual misconduct. And I should stop back and say the other thing, and I should trigger warning because this is very disturbing. The other thing that Tara accused Biden of doing, in addition to the harassment, the thing that took her longer to talk about uh, publicly was that he um, she was asked to bring him a gym bag when she was working for him in 1993. She did. She brought it to him. He then had her up against the wall. He had her his hand up her skirt and under her blouse and um, penetrated her with his hands and then um, said to her, I thought you liked come on, man. I thought you liked me. When he realized that she didn't, um, he said something like, uh, you're nothing to me. You're nothing. When she realized she was really upset about that, this is all what Tara has told me. Obviously, no one besides Tara and Biden were there, allegedly. But then allegedly, um, she he said to her, after he saw she was really upset about that, he said to her, uh, you're all right. You're OK. You're all right. You're OK. And then he walked off. And Tara at the time told her mother, who's died, her uh, friend who's spoken to me, who won't give her name, but has gone anonymously on the record. And the New York Times spoke to her. The Washington Post spoke to her. No one really, like, um, doubts who she is. They know her name and address and what she does, et cetera. She just doesn't want to be publicly exposed. Um, and the brother who Tara told in a much more muted way because she was his older sister, and that all makes sense. So um, those are the allegations. She had more corroborating witnesses that she told than Christine Blasey Ford, who I believed and I still believe. And we've seen a real double standard. It's really unfortunate. And it's really diminished the Me Too movement, which I still believe in. And that movement is founded on the principle that you the default is that you believe women because there's so many obstacles in women coming forward. And the criminal justice system is so ill-equipped to deal with them. Um, but basically, because people hate Trump, which I don't blame them, um, they don't want to look at this. And honestly, the problem is they had an entire year to look at this while Biden was not the only person in between Trump and um, another four years. Well, uh, quite so. And in that year, uh, we've all grown used to seeing video uh, of Joe Biden behaving inappropriately, right. not right. just to adult women, but to little girls. Right. Uh, in fact, yes. In real time, we've makes, seen it. Sorry. One of the things that makes the, um, the defense of Biden so literally incredible is that one of his his executive assistant for 20 years or something, Marianne Baker, because, of course, it took Biden a really long time to even respond to this. He was responding through his campaign, which is always interesting. And one of the people who came out first was a woman, Marianne Baker, who was executive his executive assistant. And she said that she had never heard about anything inappropriate between um, Tara and Biden or or Biden and anyone else. And that's just I don't know why she would say that, because I don't think anyone believes her, because how are inappropriate things, not harassment per se, but and not assault, but just inappropriate things. That's kind of the definition of how Biden operates. And I yeah. just bring that up to go to the credibility of those who are def who's defending now, uh, One of the smoking guns uh, here is uh, the call that right. Tara Reid's mother made to the Larry King show, uh, now a colleague of mine, then on uh, CNN. Right. San Luis Obispo, California. Hello. Yes, hello. 
Um, I'm wondering what um, uh, a, a staffer uh, would do, do besides go to the press in Washington. My daughter has just left there uh, after working for a prominent senator and could not get through with her problems at all. And the only thing she could have done was go to the press, and she chose not to do it out of respect for him. Or she had a story to tell, but out of respect for the person she worked for, she didn't tell it. That's true. There's proof of other things, but as proof at least, this is not an allegation that is being made now uh, because he's the Democratic Party's candidate. This is uh, an allegation made, and her mother on international television is just there uh, doing it. How significant is that? Well, it's really significant. And one of the most important things to remember is that when you don't want to come forward about your assault, you are going to reveal details in, in incompletely at first. And so many people are pointing to inconsistencies. Now, of course, like you're saying, this is pretty remarkable. Tara Reid had said to me and Ryan Grimm, at least, if not also other journalists, but she told both of us that she remembered her mother going on the Larry King show and she thought it was to say that he had harassed her. Now, it doesn't matter really. The point is that, because some of her critics, I shouldn't even waste airtime saying this, but some of them are like, well, he didn't, she didn't say it was harassment or assault. That doesn't matter. The point is something happened that was a big enough deal for Tara Reed's mother to call in. And if Tara Reed were lying, what is this? She would make it up. She didn't even know the video still existed. She had no idea. In fact, they found it because Ryan Grimm came on my podcast the same podcast where I broke the Tara Reid story. He came on, he mentioned that she had said that because we were talking about how all these, she had all these details that someone who was making something up just wouldn't have. Like, why would you say that? And sure enough, someone heard that episode and they went out and they found that videotape. So that adds up to the fact that we know from the interview with uh, that I did with Tara that her mom was really upset and really wanted Tara to go further in speaking out against this than she did. And it's kind of cool. So Tara actually was really happy that her mom, it's like her mom, I mean, it's a metaphor, obviously, but her mom wound up like speaking out for her from the de beyond the, you know, from the dead. Um, yeah. And it's really moving because her mom was this really powerful, passionate feminist who always wanted Tara to speak up more than she did. And so what happened was when the assault happened, she told her mom, she told her friends, she told another friend who came forward a few years later, and she told her brother a kind of PG-13 version that you would tell your 20-year-old brother. Um, but the really cool thing now is that we know that her mom was upset about it and Tara did not go to the police. She did file a written complaint, which um, the Biden campaign, it's just disgusting seeing how the press does the PR work of the campaign. I mean, I've known this and you know this, but I've never, and I keep, I seem so naive, but every day it's a new level of um, brazen shamelessness with which the media just serves as the PR arm for the Biden campaign. I mean, it's unbelievable. And there's all this victim blaming and rape shaming. And all of a sudden, I thought Democrats were the ones who were sensitive about trauma, sexual assault, guilt, and understanding people didn't tell everything at the same time. But all of a sudden, they are talking about Tara Reid, the way the right wing talked about Christine Blasey Ford. And it's really not going to hold. Something's going to give. And it's either the Me Too movement's um, integrity or maybe what my hope is that well, people will just actually cop to what the truth is, which is that maybe for a lot of people, Biden may have done this and maybe um, he he's better than Trump. 
and we're going to support him anyway. That's a position people have. I can agree or disagree with that, but that has some honesty. What doesn't have honesty is the idea that this woman's a liar by the very standards uh, to which we held Christine Blasey Ford. And if Christine Blasey Ford is credible, then so is Tara Reid, unless it's a class issue, in which case you're not credible unless you are a Stanford professor of psychology. Well, uh, that, again, that, that was yeah. my very next question, actually. I saw you refer uh, to the class aspect of this. Tell us what you mean by that. Well, I mean, we've known for a long time, right, that you have to be the perfect victim to get a hearing. And I actually remember some of my friends saying at the time of the Christine Blasey Ford, um, uh, you know, controversy when, when Kavanaugh was confirmed, despite the fact that not only was he unqualified, despite the fact that not only did he lie about his past, but if the Dems were at all competent, they could have read an article that Nathan Robinson wrote that detailed how he was lying during the actual confirmation hearing, but they didn't. But um, I remember a friend of mine who's a woman of color and a feminist, and she was so upset when she heard the that he was confirmed because she was like, if that woman can't get a, a hearing or she can get a hearing, but if she can be dismissed, her claims can be dismissed, how does how do any of us have a chance? How do any of other of us have a chance? Who, those who aren't women, who aren't waspy, blonde, PhDs at Stanford. Um, and again, it wasn't an insult of, of Christine Blasey Ford at all, who my friend believed and who I believe, but it kind of was a, was a rude awakening. So of course, someone who, I mean, not that it matters, but can you imagine these people are publishing that this woman um, filed for bankruptcy in 2012 as if that's weird or relevant? Why is that relevant? This is the victim shaming and smearing that, again, we expect from the right wing and not from, allegedly not from, I guess we do though, from centrist Democrats. But I think the problem is that people really don't want to say, it's one thing to say, and it's it's uncomfortable, I understand that. It's one thing to say, look, this guy is gross with women and young people. We've seen this on video. He's now accused of having sexually assaulted one woman. I think he's not as bad as Trump, and Trump has been accused of more allegations of sexual assault than Biden has. Now, I think that makes for a very weak campaign, and I think that there are other options, like having Biden step down. Or, But honestly, like, just say that. What What is so disturbing is when people say those things, like Trump raped a lot of people, and but what about Trump? He's so much worse. And at the same time, and she's a liar. Like, no, you don't have to go there, and you shouldn't go there, and you're doing a discredit to your movement and to your candidate. And Biden's defenses have been very suspect and sketchy. He hasn't said that he doesn't remember her. He says he has no memory of a complaint ever being there. And the one strength that Biden has is that he has such a uh, history of lying in general. And he so has such cognitive decline right now that it's a great cover in a way. We're so used to him lying his way in through a conversation. And also he does get kind of stuck in the headlights. So again, if you compare the rape blaming and the shaming and the rape apology to which Tara Reid is being subjected, where people say she's changing her story merely because like so many survivors, she didn't tell everything at the same time, which again is very typical. That's not changing your story. That's not inconsistent. That's coming forward with the details in the slow way that lots of survivors do. What is changing your story and being inconsistent is, for example, if you'll allow me to digress, um, Joe Biden claiming that he was arrested in South Africa. Turns out he wasn't. No, there are no shades of gray here. Not arrested in South Africa. Claiming that he taught at Penn. 
not actually true. He never taught at Penn. Claiming he was in the top half of his law class, no, he was actually number 70-something out of 80-something. Um, what else can we talk about? Uh, well, he, he was forced out as a plagiarist. Uh, right, uh, you're right. Because he plagiarized your Katie, dear you're, Nick, you're, Kin Nick um, you're, uh, Neil, Neil Kinnock. Neil Kinnock, right. You're, you're going um, to think I'm crazy here. What did you say? You're going to think I'm crazy here. But, but I believe Joe Biden may have been plagiarizing me. It was me that was arrested in South Africa. Really? It was me that was on my way to try and see Nelson Mandela in Paul's Moore Hospital. It was me that was taken to the Guguletu police station. Uh, although he got his cities mixed up, he, he said it was, he was in uh, uh, Johannesburg. Uh, but of course, uh, Mandela was in Cape Town. Uh, it was me that got punched and bled uh, at the hands of an apartheid police officer. I know you think that sounds crazy, but no, it, it, given, the, given the way he plagiarized Neil Kinnock... Uh, he has a thing for Brits. <laughs> he, he maybe thinks people in America won't know. Uh, but anyway, leaving wow. that aside, yeah. all of this mess, how can the Democrats be sanguine about going into battle? against a ferocious, grizzly bear uh, like uh, Donald Trump uh, with this man who, can, who, who, who can't go out now without his wife uh, or, his, or his sister, I don't know which. Neither he does, does, neither does he. Right. Neither right. does he. he. She's doing more talking than him. How can they possibly proceed with this man as their candidate? Well, I think it's a really interesting question because I always, uh, you know, I have a, I have a, I'm the host of the Katie Helper show. I'm also the co-host of the show called Useful Idiots with Matt Taibbi. And on both of those shows, we spend a lot of time, or I do, wondering, is this person dumb or disingenuous? So in this case, it's like, is the Democratic Party that out of touch that they really don't get how this will land or be seen kind of the way they did with Hillary Clinton? Or are they so committed to preventing Bernie Sanders from being president or being the nominee, that they'd rather go to battle with this extremely weak person. And I'm not sure, and it could be a combination and they could be tricking themselves. But again, I think the what you have is people are attempting to blame Tara. And this is the thing that like, let them come for me, that's fine. But watching them blame Tara for just trying to tell her truth over the course of a year, and this is what kills me, you know, they keep saying, isn't the timing suspicious? Now, you know what? You know her timing? Her timing was the timing of, actually, it, was, it wasn't this. Her timing was trying to tell this story for a year. But let's say she had first come forward in March and not tried to come forward since the year before. That would have made her timing comparable to the timing of Anita Hill and Christine Blasey Ford, right? They came out when Kavanaugh or Thomas were about to be confirmed. So again, you can't label this as suspicious behavior unless you're also willing to label Ford and Hill as suspicious. And um, I think that's a really good question. And a lot of people who are blamed, there was a there was a while and between there was a time after I broke the story and after Bernie Sanders dropped out and anyone who cared more about defeating Donald Trump. I mean, sorry, before Sanders dropped out. Anyone who cared more about defeating Donald Trump than they did about stopping Sanders from getting the nomination should have been writing about this, talking about it, um, agitating about it. And the excuse that The Times has and the Washington Post has is that they needed to do their investigation. That's just not true because they went into the Christine Blasey Ford story the day of and they didn't do their diligence with that. 
I mean, I'm not saying it's due diligence or not. I'm saying they didn't do the thing that they claim is required to look into this in her story. And really quickly, I just want to say that the New York Times, I, I got it's so the story is so like Orwellian. There's so many levels. It's hard to keep track. But the New York Times, when they edited that sentence at the behest of the Biden campaign and they took off that clause. Right. So it read the New York Times found no pattern of sexual misconduct. And it, it, they took off the second half of the sentence, which said, um, besides unwanted touching. When they made that sentence, they massaged it for the, the campaign. We know that they did that because the executive editor was asked about why they changed the sentence that way. And he said it's because the campaign thought it implied something it shouldn't have. So we know that. Then we know from a BuzzFeed um, article that the campaign was itself distributing talking points, including the talking point that the New York Times has, has uh, done this investigation and they determined that it's not true. And they use that very quote that they helped craft in their talking point. Now, the New York Times, to its credit, that that kind of arrogance and, and open, they pulled back the curtain a little too much on that one, I think, the Biden campaign. So New York Times journalists actually spoke out and said, we didn't determine anything either way. We didn't say it happened. We didn't say it didn't happen. And they released a statement. Now, what's amazing is, again, because the hubris knows no bounds, we see Joe Biden going on Mika on Morning Joe on Friday morning. And Mika Brzezinski herself is someone who has done um, inter run interference for Joe Biden. She defended him last April when Lucy Flores said she, Lucy Flores and seven other women, including Tara Reid, said he made them feel uncomfortable. She said he's just flirtatious. She also had on this guy, Mark Halperin, who's another Me Too guy. She wanted to have a show with him, but MSNBC wouldn't let her because it was too bad of a PR move. So she's the guy who interviews Joe Biden. And she doesn't bring up, she recycles the New York Times talking point, even though they said we didn't come out with anything either way. She very selectively says, if you look at the tape, she says, um, no, none of, no one the New York Times spoke with, none of the staff confirmed her allegations. Now, there's a reason she said none of the staff, and that's because the New York Times, over the course of its investigation, talked to two interns who didn't say they saw any harassment or assault, but here's what they said. They said that all of a sudden, Tara Reid, who was supervising them, because one of her duties at the time was supervising interns, they said that she was all of a sudden um, removed from supervising them, that she, her, her job no, include, no longer included supervising interns. Now, that's relevant, because in her interview with me and in her interview with um, Ryan Grimm, Tara specified that she felt like she had been retaliated against when she spoke out against the harassment. Now, again, she never spoke out against the assault. And and this is confusing for some people, but when you're you, a young woman and this is happening, you it's it's very understandable that you speak out against the, the harassment and then the assault you don't speak out against. Anyway, she, she spoke, she made some attempts to speak out. And she says, because of that, she was put in a windowless office. She was moved. She was given a month to find a new job. And she was also, um, Taken had a, a lot of her fun duties uh, taken away. She could only she was including supervising interns. Okay, so again, the New York Times found these two interns who corroborated that aspect of it, the retaliation aspect of it. And what's interesting is that Mika didn't bring that up. The New York Times didn't ask the Biden campaign to comment on that to confirm or deny that. But that should be a big part of the story again. And of course, Mika failed to mention that there were people who Tara Reid had told at the time, that there were people who Tara Reid had told a few years later, that these people had gone on the record, some of them. So it was a real whitewashing. And Biden, of course, no one's talking about the fact that he's lying about the National Archives. He's claiming that he'll open the National Archives 
records on him, but not his the University of Delaware records, because if there's any personnel stuff, it'll be in the National Archives. And you know who's disagreeing with him on that? The National Archives themselves. Wow. Well, this story is going to run and run, and you're the go-to uh, source and the very best of luck in avoiding Thank the you. investigators of the Federal Bureau of Investigation. If you're still yeah. at large, Katie, come back and tell us how this okay, story and is developing. Thanks Thank very you. And much. Everyone, I really encourage everyone to listen to the podcast uh, interview I did with Tara and the other ones. And that's at, uh, you can find the Katie Halbert Show on SoundCloud or iTunes, but you'll definitely want to listen to it. Okay, I'm sure they will. Thanks for joining us, Katie Halpar. I spoke earlier, I hope powerfully, certainly a, a little bit of length, about the killing of poor Harry Dunn. If Harry's family ever have a bigger stroke of luck than the presence nearby of their near neighbor, Rad Seiger, they'll be very lucky indeed because the spokesman for the campaign, the family friend of Harry, who knew Harry since he was a baby and had to see him lowered into the ground. Rad Seiger is an American living in Britain who's caused the British and American governments no end of sleepless nights because he is a tiger and he is determined to get justice for the family and I take my hat off to him. Rad Seiger joins us now on Skype. Rad, wonderful to see you again back on the show. Uh, and the main reason you're back here is there have been uh, rather a few twists since you were last here. Bring us up to date, if you will. George, very good evening to you and your viewers. You've summed it up perfectly. Uh, George, since I was last on your show a few weeks ago, uh, uh, what's 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 coming out in the British media, and my my thanks to all them for all their hard work is nothing short of extraordinary. And this evening we are we are on the verge of witnessing one of the greatest uh, scandals being exposed in certainly in my living memory, George. And uh, it breaks my heart because not only has it done terrible damage to the you know the relationship between these two great countries but more importantly to me as you've just said my friends live about 300 yards up the road from where i am and and george they're you know just going through the most awful time and um it's all it's all needless so look just a very brief update then so um as a reminder it's it, in the english legal system it's up to the police to determine who has uh diplomatic immunity that's written into the rules. And what's come out now is uh, the Foreign Office in London took it upon themselves to determine that Ansicoulis had immunity. They kept Northamptonshire police in the dark for 14 days, the very people who were supposed to make that determination. Uh, her position, her diplomatic immunity position, George, as you and I have discussed before, is far from clear. We say she doesn't have it. At, at best, it's ambiguous. They kept out all that information from the police. And then guess what? They let her leave. And George, uh, I, you know, I, I, I just can't quite believe what I've seen. And, uh, you know, it's done, it's done terrible damage. Now, what we don't know at this point is whether that's a cock-up or whether it's conspiracy. But as I've made clear to you before and your viewers, 
I am going to find the truth out. We're very nearly there. And I would put out another appeal to the British government this evening to come and talk to me this week, lay everything out openly and transparently, uh, transparently uh, agree to a full inquiry, and then maybe, just maybe, we, we can begin to alleviate some of the pain that this poor family are going through. If they don't do that, George, well, uh, you know, they're, uh, as you can imagine, they're in a whole lot of pain tonight. Uh, the pain that they're going to suffer if they continue this disgraceful cover-up is, is, is going to uh, be beyond the pale. So, look, it's, it's, it's twists and turns every day. There are developments um, by the hour. And it's, you know, from the family's perspective, as you can imagine, they just don't understand a lot of it. It's very complex legally, some of it. But they, you know, in a nutshell, Northamptonshire police were kept in the dark. And um, George, you know, you'll you'll understand the term uh, interfering in a police investigation. Sure. I don't. It's I don't a crime, know actually. It, uh, George, it, quite. It, I don't know whether it's, it's deliberate. It's a very it's well-known uh, yeah. crime. Um, it may disappoint you, uh, but uh, British governments have oftentimes conspired against their own citizens, uh, oftentimes betrayed the interests of their own citizens. But this is the first case uh, that I know about uh, where the government were deliberately lying to were keeping uh, relevant, vital, relevant information from our own police force. Uh, the Northamptonshire police were doing their duty. Uh, the government uh, perverted the course of that uh, duty. Now, you say you don't know if it was a cock-up or a conspiracy. I've got to tell you, in this case, I'm absolutely certain it was a conspiracy. They knew that if left to the local police uh, with more integrity than they had, uh, that this could uh, lead into very difficult waters for the uh, British-American special relationship. So they took the decision uh, to deliberately blindside uh, our own police force. What? are North, North Hans police saying about that? I, I, I don't know is the honest truth to that, George, but I have, I have sat with them before and I've seen how angry they are. I didn't know why then, but I certainly know, know now. And, uh, you know, I, I think they're going to be standing shoulder to shoulder with us. And, uh, well, you know, they are absolutely furious. I, 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 I'm certain of that. Now, this uh, decision, I'm again bound to tell you, uh, must have been taken at a ministerial level. Uh, this Correct. was uh, far too important uh, to be dealt with by some flunky in tights in the foreign office and, uh, and patent buckled shoes, uh, some man with a stick. Uh, this uh, decision must have been taken at least by the foreign secretary. Uh, that was uh, Dominic Raab, wasn't it? Absolutely correct, George. There's no doubt in my mind that the civil servants did not make these decisions. And I have reason to believe this evening that this possibly goes to number 10 as well. And I know, George, maybe some people have, have been swept under the carpet before. Harry Dunn's family are not going to be swept under the carpet. There is no way on this earth that I'm going to let anybody off who was involved in this decision that's caused this damage to my friends off the hook. Now, 
I, I, I hope and pray that they're going to do the right thing and come clean about it. George, you know, there's nothing that I hate more than anything else than a cover-up. And if this goes as high as number 10, that's where we're going to go. Uh, finally, and I'm grateful for your time, uh, Rod, what's the, uh, what's the latest in the court case? So there's a judicial review against the um, foreign secretary at the moment. Uh, we, we, we we've had hearings postponed because of the lockdown, obviously. Um, uh, if they don't concede the case, George, which I certainly hope that they will, um, those hearings will be relisted next month. And make no mistake, we will prevail in those proceedings, no doubt. Stay on the line, Rod, because there's a call about it uh, from Sean in London. Sean, go ahead. Hi there, George. It's smashing to speak to you again. And you. Hi there, Rod. Smashing to speak to you as well. Um, what I'd like to say, I believe that this is some sort of conspiracy between the British government and the American government. What I believe is that they won't extradite Ansacoulis to the United Kingdom because the British government have come into a deal with them that if Prince Andrew is wanted in the United States for questioning about child abuse, then they will refuse to send him over on account of Ansacoulis not being sent to Britain. And I believe that this is uh, a conspiracy that is being organised by the British establishment and the American establishment. I don't know what you and Rad think about that, but that's my personal view. Rad, you got any views on that? I'm sorry, George, I didn't get any of that. I didn't hear that. Uh, Sean wonders if this is tied up with the reported wish uh, of the FBI to question Prince Andrew. Uh, and he wonders because nobody trusts government anymore. Uh, and quite rightly, too, uh, wondering if this is some kind of quid pro quo. Certainly. So we've we, 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 we've looked at that issue before. Uh, you, know, you can never look at this, George, as a, you know, any straight swap, a, a prisoner swap, effectively. But what I've said to Mr. Robb and what I've made clear to other members of the government, that absolutely nobody in the United Kingdom is to be extradited to the United States uh, until the United States lives up to its international obligations and sends people this way. So I'm very confident that people like Julian Assange, Prince Andrew, Dr. Mike Lynch, and others will not be going to the United States while the Americans have effectively ripped up the extradition treaty. Well, thanks, uh, Rod, uh, very much indeed for joining us again. Please uh, keep bringing us up to date. Uh, with the case as it develops, and I hope the government uh, comes to heel and does the right thing in the course of the uh, next week. But I saw some pigs flying past the uh, window there as I was speaking. Rad Saiga, the spokesman for the family of Harry Dunn. Thank you, Sean, in London uh, for that call. Uh, lots of uh, social media comments, but I probably better take a quick one-minute break. Bear with me. Now, the latest inductee for our mother of all talk shows, Hall of Fame, is a man who passed earlier this week at the age of 87. Uh, he was a friend of mine. His name was Dennis Goldberg. He was one of a significant number about whom I've spoken before, most notably uh, in my uh, speech at the Oxford Union. Uh, which you can consult uh, on YouTube. Dennis Goldberg was a living proof uh, that Jewish people 
in South Africa under apartheid in significant numbers, not only stood against apartheid, but fought with guns, with weapons against apartheid with the armed wing of the African National Congress, which then as now leads the uh, battle uh, for the liberation uh, of the majority black population of South Africa. Now, once upon a time, in my lifetime, there would be nothing at all exceptional about that. Because in my lifetime, it was uh, a commonplace uh, that Jewish people would be right at the front of the battle against uh, Jim Crow in the United States, against uh, uh, the, the institutionalized apartheid that existed well into the 1960s in the United States of America. It was a commonplace that Jewish people would have been in the front ranks of the fight for equality uh, around the world. It's only of late uh, that some have tried uh, to persuade us uh, that the issues of apartheid are over, are history, and apartheid no longer exists anywhere. Dennis Goldberg never believed that. Dennis Goldberg was convicted alongside Nelson Mandela, but he never shared a cell or a cell block with Nelson Mandela in 22 years of incarceration because absurdly the apartheid system applied even in prison. And so there were five Jews, by the way, five Jews on trial with Mandela at the Ravonia trial in the early 1960s where they were alleged to have conspired at the home of a farmer himself also Jewish, to plan the military struggle for the overthrow of apartheid. And Dennis Goldberg, when finally freed, went to Israel to visit his daughter on her kibbutz, but rapidly left to return as a hero in South Africa, uh, because he said apartheid was alive and sick in Israel itself. Dennis Goldberg then campaigned around the world with other Jewish heroes, like Ronnie Kasrils, his comrade in arms, for an understanding in the world that whereas boycott, divestment, and sanctions had worked as the anvil on which South African apartheid was broken, with the ANC as the hammer, BDS around the world as the anvil, apartheid South Africa was broken. And Dennis Goldberg, until his dying breath, fought for the Palestinian people with all the passion with which he had fought for the people of his own country, South Africa. 
He was a hero. Like Joe Slovo was a hero. Like Ruth First was a hero. Like Albi Sachs was a hero. Like Ronnie Castro's is a hero. Dennis Goldberg, who died this week, was a hero worthy of inclusion in our mother of all talk shows, Hall of Fame. Now, one of the friends with whom I worked for many long years when it looked as if we might not prevail, when apartheid had many friends and powerful interests alongside it, and we were comparatively few in number. Our leader in Scotland, then as now, in the anti-apartheid struggle was Brian Filling, a good friend of mine, and now, praise the Lord, the Honorary Consul of South Africa in Scotland, and he joins me now. Brian, wonderful to see you again. You don't look a day older, unlike my good self. Uh, our friend, Dennis, has passed, uh, but his name will live forevermore, won't it? It will indeed, uh, George. Uh, <clears throat> I, you're very flattering to say I don't look a day older. I, uh, I can assure you I, that's not what everybody says, but uh, thank you anyway. Uh, yes, it's uh, a sad week uh, with Dennis passing, uh, but it's also a time to celebrate his wonderful contribution not just to South Africa, but uh, in many parts of the world, because uh, when he was released from prison, of course, he became the ANC ambassador and spokesperson, and he traveled the world, uh, which of course was still suffering under apartheid, that crime against humanity, uh, which unfortunately, uh, the British governments, including at that time, the Mrs. Thatcher government, uh, continued to resist sanctions, the last country in the world to do so. And uh, he campaigned, uh, as you well know, uh, in Britain as well. And uh, I was very fortunate to, uh, uh, <coughs> on his release, organise his first uh, visit to Scotland, where he went on a speaking tour. He came many times thereafter. And he was inspiring uh, and uh, brought many, many people into the anti-apartheid movement and the cause. Um, and then I was uh, very fortunate that uh, uh, in 1994, uh, when ANC won the election, and on the 10th of May, uh, Mandela was uh, inaugurated as president, I sat beside Dennis and his wife Esme in Union Buildings, the citadel of apartheid, uh, to celebrate uh, the inauguration. And I remember Dennis uh, looking up at the fly pass and saying, he used to sit in Pretoria Central Prison, where as you say, he was for 22 years. And each fly pass of the uh, planes coming over to recognize the incoming president, and of course it was apartheid presidents while he was in prison. He tried to do a Yuri Gellner and bend their wings, <laughs> typical, typical of uh, Dennis's humor. Uh, and he looked up and when he saw the new flag under the wings of those planes, he said in his dry way, I hope these really belong to us and it doesn't uh, happen what happened in Chile with a dual recall 
the overthrow of President Allende, uh, initiated by the CIA, which put Pinicio into power for a long time, unfortunately. Yes. So, now, on that question of time, Brian, um, yeah. it is now a commonplace. I mean, no, no person in their right mind would now admit uh, to having been a supporter of the brutal apartheid system in South Africa. But you and I lived through a time where we were the outlaws and the rich and the powerful in Britain were up to their necks in South African apartheid. Tell us something of that. Yes, indeed. Um, <clears throat> the reality is that uh, even now, uh, people who, uh, as you say, no one claims to have supported apartheid uh, indeed, some deny uh, still that they did, but we know who they are. Um, and uh, uh, for example, uh, the uh, Tory group in Glasgow City Council uh, boycotted the uh, freedom of the city being given to Nelson Mandela in 1981, wow. and uh, which was the first city in the world to give him freedom. And uh, years later, uh, well, sometime later, they went a delegation to uh, South Africa, run by the, the then apartheid consulate in Glasgow. And uh, this was to uh, show to them that the tri tricameral parliament, you may recall that uh, in the, uh, the apartheid regime, in trying to fool the world that they were reforming, had given a, a, a parliament to the uh, Indians, a parliament uh, to the, the coloured people, but the white parliament still retained the majority control. So nothing actually had changed. I'm glad to say that uh, many, many, the vast majority of Indians and coloured people, and as they were uh, described at that time during apartheid, uh, with its apartheid policies, uh, they resisted and uh, it became a mock uh, of a parliament. But these Tory councillors went out there, came back and argued that uh, South Africa was changing and that we there was therefore no need for sanctions and so on. And so yes, Mrs Thatcher led the world in, ter in terms of its opposition uh, to sanctions. I remember at the Commonwealth uh, Summit in 1986, uh, when she was asked the question at a press conference afterwards, and how many, how much concessions did you make, Mrs. Thatcher, on sanctions? And she uh, did a gesture like this to show how little uh, she put her fingers up, showing it was half an inch between her two fingers. We gave nothing, she said. She was very disappointed that the Americans, uh, because of the pressure from African Americans, particularly in Congress, uh, had uh, began to introduce some sanctions. But she was in the last in the world, as the Tory government in Britain were, to support apartheid, much as they deny it, the, many of those who are still alive, unlike Mrs Thatcher, would, would no longer say that they, they, did, they did support apartheid. Well, uh, I was uh, in Parliament when there was a thriving group uh, of, uh, admittedly by then, only Conservative MPs, though there had been one or two Labour MPs in the past. Yes. Uh, but by then, when I entered Parliament, 
over 30 years ago, there was still a thriving group of Friends of Apartheid South Africa. And down further below in the ranks of the conservative students movement, uh, there, was, uh, there was a campaign, they used to wear t-shirts. Hang Nelson Mandela, they said on their t-shirts. And believe it or not, uh, the former speaker of the British Parliament, John Bercow, was one of those students campaigning for the hanging of Nelson Mandela. Yes, well, I remember it well. In fact, uh, at Glasgow University, the students had elected Winnie Mandela as a rector. Um, and then uh, uh, when she made the infamous speech about uh, uh, matchsticks and the tires, if you recall, the necklacing. Yes. Um, they used it to try and uh, uh, remove her uh, as rector. I always regarded uh, Winnie Mandela as a victim of apartheid. I mean, as Nelson himself said, she suffered more than he did, if that's possible. But that's what he said, because she was banished uh, and uh, sent to a place where she knew no one, separated from her children. This was following uh, solitary confinement and torture. Um, and uh, anyway, these Tory students tried to remove her. And there was a television programme being held, um, and you may recall Margaret MacDonald was the uh, anchor on this programme. And uh, she uh, introduced me as we tried to get X, we tried to get Y, we tried to get Z, but the only person who we could get to agree to come on to speak for Winnie Mandela was Brian Philly. <laughs> and a Tory student was uh, there to debate with me. And in those days, uh, 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 maybe the, the technology wouldn't allow this now, but they made good tel television when the course of it, you try to throw a punch at me. <laughs> and uh, uh, this was in the days when you, there was plenty of alcohol uh, uh, provided by the studios. So he was a bit drunk, but he, was, he, he just showed himself of what he was. I mean, he, he couldn't handle the argument. Uh, uh, he didn't want to talk about apartheid, of course. Uh, that wasn't of any interest. Uh, they were trying to use any uh, weakness, or in this case, uh, a mistake, uh, an understandable mistake, in my opinion, by Winnie Mandela, mm. uh, uh, to further their support for apartheid. So the Tory students, yes, were very, very uh, much in support of apartheid. Well, uh, we buried uh, our uh, comrade, uh, Dennis Goldberg, this week. Uh, how now do you view, how do you evaluate uh, the importance to the struggle of that phalanx of South African Jewish people that I mentioned uh, earlier? From Joe Slover, the leader of uh, the armed struggle, Ruth First, a great leader of the uh, South African liberation struggle, his wife. Uh, uh, Albi Sachs, Ronnie Castros, Dennis Goldberg. There's a famous five for you, and there's many, many more. Indeed. Uh, yes, and uh, as you well know, uh, all of them were uh, great supporters of uh, the Palestinians. And uh, uh, I mean, Ruth first was assassinated, of course, in Mozambique. Uh, uh, Joe Slova has died, although I was fortunate to uh, know him when he was in exile and work with him. 
And then uh, uh, when he became the Minister of Housing in Mandela's government, I met him and uh, had long discussions with him. Albie Sachs uh, has been to, uh, uh, as a visiting professor to Sir Clyde University in Glasgow and uh, of course has made a wonderful film uh, and he also had an attempted assassination on him, lost an arm and an eye. Um, so, and Dennis, above all of course, spending 22 years in prison, gave their lives uh, in the struggle to free and liberate South Africa. But at the same time, like Nelson Mandela, they said, we can't be free until others are free. And in particular, they meant the Palestinians, who of course still languish in what we now know is an apartheid state uh, of Israel. The way it conducts uh, itself, the way it uh, uh, deals with the Palestinian people, with the wall, uh, with uh, the inability to move, uh, is not distinguishable in any major respect from what the uh, apartheid regime did to the black people of South Africa by putting them into their bantustans. And these uh, 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 Jewish activists, most of them, by the way, as you'll know, <clears throat> had become secular, uh, but they never uh, forgot uh, their origins and uh, they, they knew but the the, uh, the Nazis, in terms of the way they treated the Jewish people, uh, were not dissimilar to what the apartheid regime did to the black people in South Africa. So yes, these were uh, great people, wonderful to know a number of them. We're very lucky. And, we're very lucky to have uh, known them and worked with them. Brian Filling, uh, you've done marvelously well uh, in helping induct our friend, Dennis in to the mother of all talk shows, Hall of Fame. Thank you very much indeed for I'm very pleased to help. Thank you, Thank my dear. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Friend. Uh, poll one, who should remain in lockdown? A, Dominic Raab, 30%. B, Joe Biden, 50%. C, David Icke, 20%. Now, earlier I mentioned... I'd made a short on the issue of the coronavirus and on the amazing push to force our people back to work in toxic, lethal conditions. Here it is now. Let's take a look. The establishment and business are demanding an end to the lockdown, which poses an immediate problem for the tinfoil-hatted flat earth conspiracy theorists who told us that the lockdown was a conspiracy by the establishment and big business. But no matter, business wants an end to lockdown, quarantine and social distancing. But as Mandy Rice Davis said, they would say that, wouldn't they? 
The ultimate lockdown is, of course, being placed in a box and buried under the ground. And prophets can never be allowed to come before people, however much the establishment and business would like it to be so. As a matter of fact, it's a criminal offence in Britain, and I'm one of those that helped to make it so, to send workers willfully into a dangerous environment. No environment could be much more dangerous than the coronavirus 19 environment, which has poisoned so many places in so many countries around the world and killed vast numbers of people. And so the owners of businesses uh, that uh, reopened and took their workers into an unsafe environment would be laying themselves open to prosecution for corporate manslaughter. Personally, they could go to prison. And I hope that they'll weigh that up very carefully. Already, far too many of our workers are working at the front line in dangerous conditions without even the basics of personal protection. Bus drivers, tube drivers, staffs in the supermarkets and food shops, the delivery drivers, all kinds of workers, key workers, are not being protected and yet are required to continue working leaving their employers, I should say, open to prosecution. And rather the government, which has singularly failed in its duty to its own direct employees and has not made the public realm safe for key workers, never mind the return of workers generally. Now, I'm not saying it's not hard to be locked down. I could hardly say it. I'm going nuts in here. But, as I said, the ultimate lockdown is when you're in that coffin, when you're in that cold earth. Some say that we must lift the lockdown for our old people, but as Colonel Tom Moore, and how long must we wait before he's Sir Tom Moore, has made it clear our old people are made of sterling stuff. Our old people the people who went through the Second World War being bombed every night by German bombers rushing to Anderson shelters, rushing underground into air raid shelters are made of sterner stuff than the trials of isolation and quarantine in the age of television and radio and even FaceTime. It ought to be possible for their families and for the society to support them through this period of painful isolation. But I want to keep them alive. They are working people, and without them, we would not be here, and they need to be kept safe. So my message is simple. Until the employing class and its government can prove to us uh, that they have cleaned the environment and that it is safe for workers to return, no worker must be forced back to work, either by poverty or by diktat. The wages of all workers followed must be met. The needs of small and medium-sized enterprises must be underwritten and guaranteed by the government and the Bank of England. Some of the big businesses, like Richard Branson's Virgin Airways, I'm afraid we'll have to go to the wall because a period of rationalization 
and a more rational economy must inevitably follow uh, the exigencies of coronavirus 19. We are unlucky uh, to be living uh, through such a period, but we'd be even more unlucky if we were to perish. So no return to work until it's safe to do so. That's what I say. What say you? All of the lives of my sons have had football as their essential, indispensable uh, framework. Uh, in my uh, earlier times, three o'clock on a Saturday afternoon, kickoff, uh, sometimes Wednesday night games, uh, home internationals at the end of every season. And then as things developed, uh, the, there was a Saturday raft of games and a Sunday raft of games. And no matter what else I was doing, I was on the way to do those things, listening uh, for the results and, if possible, the commentary of football and the European Championships uh, every four years, the World Cup every four years, staggered so that uh, every two years you had a major international uh, football tournament. Um, and so there's a large football-sized hole in my life right at this minute. And believe it or not, I'm not alone. Uh, there's a lot more money, of course, now in football than there was in the past, which is providing a very definitive spur to getting the ball back on the grass. No one, so far as I know, is suggesting reopening the stadia uh, to uh, fans, supporters, in their scores of thousands, uh, that would be obviously mad. Uh, but the amount of money and the time of the season that the whole thing was interrupted, with Liverpool, for example, streets ahead in the English Premiership, are they to be robbed uh, of the title, their first in, in 30 years? Uh, Celtic in Scotland, heading for that record-breaking 10 in a row, robbed uh, this season with an asterisk, i.e. they were ahead, even well ahead, uh, but they didn't win the title because the championship was never completed. Now, Dr. Tim Walters is a professor at Okanagan College. He's also a football commentator, and he's been writing and talking in recent days about how we can get football back on the road. And I'm glad to say Dr. Walters joins me now. Doctor, thank you for joining us. Yeah, thanks for talking to me, George. How are you doing? Good. I'm missing the game, though. Uh, just uh, sketch, if you would, the backdrop to this. Uh, how devastating has this been uh, for professional football? Well, it's been hugely problematic across the entire industry, if it is that. Um, obviously, there's very little revenue coming in at the top of the game where the majority of the money comes from television rights. Um, they're going to be dealing very soon with real shortages. Um, and so there's a big rush to get things going back as quickly as possible. Obviously, uh, gate receipts from match attendance have gone down. Advertising soon going to be a problem. So the, the business of football is in something of a state of crisis and trying to figure out what to do next. 
Are the television companies still paying for non-existent games that they had contracted to cover? Uh, or have they cited force majeure and stopped paying? Well, it's been different. Uh, different countries um, and different networks have responded very differently. But in the UK, my understanding, because as you know, they're looking right now at planning on restarting the game. Um, the one of the motivating factors for that is to get that television revenue for the rest of the the Premier League season. Um, in the hopes that I think is completely misleading, um, that they're going to be able to restart the season again in August as planned. You think it's misleading that they will be able to? You think the game cannot start in August? Well, the the responses by government, uh, who the culture secretary said last week um, ahead of meetings with the Premier League, that they're looking to get the game going as soon as is humanly possible. Um, the response by footballing authorities uh, everywhere, basically, has been that we need to get these seasons resolved. Um, which led to some of the problems that you mentioned previously about promotion, relegation, European qualification, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, in, and that's only really a crisis if your anticipation is that the season is going to be restarting and you're going to be playing out full seasons uh, in August. Um, and that is almost definitely not going to happen unless you're willing to contemplate the possibility that for the next year, football is going to be only played behind closed doors. Well, I mean, I've seen games behind closed doors. In fact, the last game I watched, uh, Manchester United uh, had a thumping victory in the, in the Europa League uh, behind closed doors. And uh, I thought at the time it was a monstrosity, but I'd, I'd give you my left arm at least uh, for that to happen again, Tim. Uh, I never thought I'd say that, but I'd rather see the game behind closed doors than not see it at all. Where do you stand on that? Well, I think it's something of a false dichotomy between those two things. Um, I mean, I agree with you. I miss football as much as everyone else. Um, and I would love to be able to watch it right now. Um, there's a kind of dearth of football in content and you can only listen to people talking about football uh, so much. I think, though, fundamentally, the, there's going to have to be a really important decision made about what the future of football is going to look like for the next two years. The default setting for, I think, uh, somewhat troubling political and also economic reasons is basically we'll do anything that is possible in order to wrap up this season, uh, including playing ghost games, which is the plan that the Premier League is considering under the so-called Project Restart Initiative. Um, that they're going to be voting on at the end of next week. The argument that I'm making instead is that we should be accepting of the fact that football is not going to return in the way that we want it to over the next 18 months, probably, until next summer, um, and that we should be planning accordingly for that. And planning accordingly for that doesn't look like trying to get this season wrapped up and then sell season tickets, which a lot of clubs are already doing for next season. It looks like accepting the fact that there is not going to be a regular next season in the Premier League with 38 games played between now and next April um, and just honoring the principles of the sport, um, which is that seasons are to be completed and spreading the football that we have left over the, over the next year 
so that fans who to me are an indispensable part of the game are allowed to be participants in their their club's activities that requires a little bit of patience and long-term thinking um but i think it's absolutely the best option for the future of the sport it's the best option for the safety of the players and the safety of the essential workers um, and the communities that they live in, who I think are all going to be imperiled by some of the ideas that are being bandied about at the minute. So, but, I mean, but when you say ghost games, do you mean behind closed doors games? That's right, yeah. So the, the, the plan that the, the Premier League is taking most seriously based on everything that I've uh, heard and read so far um, and their meeting on May 8th, where I think they're going to be voting on this, is that they're going to defer the Premier League uh, for a couple of weeks. They're planning on restarting in mid-June. Um, they're planning over a six-week period to play the remaining 92 games at uh, possibly neutral venues. Initially, they were talking about having them all be played at Wembley. But this is going to require quarantining um, several hundred people. So the, the Bundesliga estimated that in order to have a ghost game, you still need 322 people. So that's players, um, coaching staff, medical people, security people, media people. So 322 people a game. All of them are going to have to be quarantined uh, in hotels, presumably with other workers that are going to have to be there. Um, putting themselves at risk and then travel through sterile routes between the games, uh, between the different cities where their games are, are going to be played. Um, and that way they think they can end the season uh, six weeks later. So by the end of July, which will give a little bit of a break, but it's going to fundamentally transform the way that the game is played as well as putting in jeopardy the health and safety of all of those people who are going to be involved. It's going to require um, some people have said up to 2 million different tests, um, which are tests that aren't going to be available to NHS workers, to other essential workers, to folks who arguably need them more because their work is essential and necessary. And I don't think that that is a trade-off worth making. Um, and the way that the government has responded uh, to this crisis so far has already um, put people's lives in danger. Um, and I think the proceeding in a way that's going to exacerbate that situation is ethically disastrous. Finally, and I'm grateful for your time, Doctor. Why not uh, just uh, call this season uh, where the clubs stand? Uh, give Liverpool the Premiership, give Celtic the Scottish Premier League. Uh, don't relegate anyone because then you'd be right into uh, serious litigation. Uh, don't promote uh, from the lower divisions, which may itself then bring litigation. Uh, why not forget about this season and plan on a later start uh, next year with, if necessary, these kind of ghost games when more people will be back at work uh, and will have more experience about what the impact of more people going back to work actually is. I think that that is a response to a somewhat manufactured crisis, which is to say that the the challenge of resolving these seasons is only really a challenge if you believe that they need to be completed in order to begin the next one in August. And that is absolutely not the case. So I don't think that Liverpool or Celtic want to win 
the Premier League or the Scottish Premier League um, that way. That's one of the ideas that are being considered in Scotland in particular. Um, it's what they're doing in Holland. It's unfair to base promotion or relegation on unfinished seasons, I think. And it's also completely unnecessary. We have between now and when the Euros start next summer to resolve all of those seasons. And there's plenty of time to do that if you give yourself a little breathing space and are not immediately motivated by the political hit of being able to give people bread and circuses, which everyone would like at this particular point, or also the uh, economic necessity of keeping the game going under any circumstances whatsoever. I don't think it's fair. I don't think that it's right for teams that are going to be um, relegated as a result of that or avoid the opportunity of promotion as a result of that. Um, so I think the seasons need to be completed when it's safe, uh, and sensible to do so. And I think that we're uh, several months away from that right now. Fascinating. Thank you very much indeed, Dr. Tim Walters of Okanagan College. Thanks for joining us. Piers Morgan, who has done more than any other journalist and broadcaster uh, over the last few weeks to try and hold the British government to account uh, for the scandalous state of Britain's preparedness for a pandemic and the rocketing death rate in our country has had a test for the coronavirus and will miss uh, the uh, program that he presents Monday to Thursday uh, in the week, uh, Good Morning Britain. He hasn't yet got the result uh, of the test, uh, but because of a symptom, he doesn't say which, uh, that he has been suffering, he got the test and is waiting uh, for the results. So the very best of luck with that, Piers, uh, because we need you back as the only journalist, frankly, uh, with one or two other exceptions, and they are only one or two, the only journalist worth his salt in this current uh, crisis. Who should remain in lockdown indeterminately? A, Dominic Rabb, B, Joe Biden, C, David Icke. You can vote on my Twitter feed. Get the votes in now, if you will. Social media comments on Facebook. Virginia says, some are trying to get Michelle Obama to run for president, but she said no. Well, I'm not sure she'll stick to that no. Let's wait and see. And on Twitter, my old friend Filza from Ireland says, uh, he won't be caught gardening. My God, GG, even the newscasters on Sputnik are as witty and funny as you are. He's a young talent, that, Jamie, I must say. Stuart says, as a UK citizen, much as I would love to lock down Dominic Rabb, I'm compelled to vote for Joe Biden in this poll for the good of the world. Now, uh, if uh, Piers Morgan has been good, Dr. Ranjit Brar has been even better. Right from the beginning, with crystal clarity, he's brought us the up-to-date position from a medical perspective, but also from a political perspective to the subject of the coronavirus. And I'm glad to say Dr. Ranjit Brar joins us uh, again now. Welcome back, doctor. Uh, tell us uh, what uh, you see in the latest curves. Uh, the government claim uh, that they're testing has been ramped up uh, phenomenally, uh, incredibly, 
and it was right to call them incredible because they turned out not to be credible, uh, the actual claims that they made, but nonetheless, a vast increase in the amount of testing. Uh, they say that we're past the peak. Are we? Thanks, George. Good to be back with you. Um, so se several parts to your question there. Um, uh, in terms of the numbers of cases we're seeing around the world, it still goes on. Probably not at quite such a great rate. The rate of increase is still very large, uh, but it seems that the curves are very slightly flattening in terms of their rate of increase. But they're still really, they are exponential. So there are more than three and a half million cases worldwide. We know in Britain, we've got test positive um, 280,000 patients, and we have had a variable number of deaths depending on which um, figures you look at. Uh, it seems that we're now just about to overtake Italy with uh, 28,000 coming on 29,000 proven deaths. But that's just in hospital. And as we mentioned last time, the figures including care homes and including deaths at home are much more in the region of 50,000, making us really the second worst in the world. So the fact that numbers in hospital are declining, of course, is to be welcome. But you know, another piece of information has come out to show just what the implications of turning over our entire NHS to dealing with coronavirus have been. Uh, before coronavirus hit, there were actually four million patients who are waiting for elective surgical care. Um, the Royal College of Surgeons have released information saying that a further two million uh, operations have been cancelled during this period. So really, we've only just managed to cope by putting the entire health service, if you like, on ice other than for the most urgent cases. And there'll be a knock-on effect of that as well. Uh, the testing has increased. Uh, there's no doubt about that. Um, but equally, not as much as um, they have initially claimed. So they counted tests that they've posted rather than tests that have actually been performed. The results have come back on and they've enacted on, which is not really a very accurate way of testing. But tests are, are increasing and now increasingly members of the, of the healthcare service, at least, are able to access testing. They haven't all been tested. I've still got colleagues who haven't been tested. Uh, and again, it's the test which says if you're actively symptomatic. So if you've had it in the past, recovered, you don't know as a healthcare worker still whether you're protected or whether you're exposed. And as we've seen, a very large number now of healthcare workers, at least 100, there are studies which say they've identified possibly 200, but have only been able to contact and confirm 100 deaths in the NHS. So a large number of people working on the front line have succumbed. And really, this is still a very active problem that we're facing in Britain, George. Have you ever known more than 100, 108 was the last figure I read, more than 100 NHS workers to die uh, from uh, a disease contracted, uh, presumably, overwhelmingly likely, uh, at work? Have you ever known of such a rate of attrition in so few weeks? No, George, it's totally historically unprecedented. There's no infectious disease in the history of the National Health Service, you know, which has certainly been around in its present time since the Second World War, uh, in which members of the NHS, doctors, nurses, physiotherapists, healthcare workers of all descriptions have been succumbing. Um, and there are worrying statistics about you know, who exactly is coming down with the disease. It's increasingly obvious uh, evident from analysis that it's the relatively poor, the relatively marginalised within Britain and, and around the world 
who are suffering most because they're unable even to socially isolate. We talked about the fact that so many of our children during the time when they're not meant to be at school have been going to get their school dinners because that's actually the only secure source of nutrition they had. But there are other things, overcrowded housing, um, increasingly uh, people who can't afford not to stop working and our frontline workers in one form or another are more likely to die than others. But even within the NHS, very disturbing evidence from the BMA uh, where they've seen that black and ethnic minority doctors have been more pressured to work in frontline, unprotected situations than average. And therefore, revealing an, you know, a, a, an element of conscious as well as you know, racism, as well as just a, a pure, you know, this is hitting the economically most disadvantaged sections of our society. And that's a very unpleasant mirror to hold up to British society, George. Well, let, let's disaggregate those two points. Um, if you look at the London boroughs, uh, if you look at the fatality rates in London boroughs, uh, you can make an absolutely direct correlation between uh, poverty, uh, overcrowded housing, and the number of people uh, dead. Uh, Newham is the worst. Uh, Tower Hamlets uh, is the second worst. Hatton is the third worst or the other way around. Uh, Richmond is the best. Um, that's not rocket science, cannot be gainsaid. The second issue though, uh, is, is it the case that the disproportionate number of black and minority ethnic staffs that have fallen uh, in this crisis, is that because of some genetic issue vis-a-vis uh, -vis the uh, virus? Is it because uh, we've got far higher numbers of black and minority ethnic people working in the NHS than those who don't use it uh, hitherto imagined? Or is it, as you uh, imply, uh, that uh, these are the workers that are being pushed by the management uh, onto the most dangerous front lines? Well, it's a very uncomfortable question, and I think it's one you have to face face on. So my, I, I had been interviewed about this previously, and my reading of it was as a purely economic uh, and not genetic, but there, is, there are several other issues. So, you know, certainly South Asians tend to live in uh, extended families in which um, we know there's interfamilial spread is a very strong factor. So the Chinese, in fact, didn't isolate people at home, as we've been doing, because they worried about them becoming unwell, being uh, un unable to properly isolate. So they, socially, they isolated them socially, so they put them in hospitals where they were cared for, they had their needs cared for, and therefore were less likely to spread in the community, but in particular to their family units. And if you live in an overcrowded house with a large family unit, you're more likely to spread to the whole house and equally to the older generation, and they're more likely to die. So that, that's an element, so there's a cultural element to it. Um, there's a, there's a definitely an economic element to it. Um, and the, the comorbidities of cardiac disease, diabetes, heart, um, hypertension, and obesity are all prevalent in our society in general, but they're particularly high in um, particularly, again, the South Asian community. So there's definitely an element of those things, which is understandable. Um, but if you look at the, and I hadn't witnessed myself this personally, I have to say, but if you look at the BMA, uh, they did a very wide questionnaire which they've published over the last few days of staff, and it does show disproportionate pressuring of ethnic minority staff to work in conditions where they've not been adequately protected. So that's their finding. It's an uncomfortable finding, but it's one that has to be acknowledged, George. 
Very troubling uh, indeed. Now, uh, finally, and I'm grateful for your time as always, uh, four-fifths of the British public in the opinion polls uh, support the line I took in the shot that I did for RT uh, just a few minutes ago, uh, that, uh, that people should not be forced uh, to work, either by poverty or by diktat. And those pushing now, in the interests of the establishment and business to reopen uh, the, uh, the streets, the shops, the workplaces and so on. Uh, only a, fourth, uh, a fifth of the people of Britain agree with that. Uh, where, where do you stand on this? Lockdown or no lockdown? So, I mean, if you look at Michael Gove's response to his questioning about mass testing, he really ducked, ducked the issue. He was asked very directly, you know, um, is it possible to avoid, would it have been possible to avoid some of these deaths if there was a much uh, better strategy of mass testing earlier on? And unquestionably, the answer to that has to be yes. He said it's unknowable, but it, it's quite clearly evident from other countries' strategies that they haven't experienced what we have uh, precisely for that reason. And it's hard to, to see a strategy of coming out of lockdown that doesn't involve a substantial increase, second peak, um, of infections without a very much improved mass testing, contact tracing protocol. Now, there have been announcements from the government that they're planning to put this in place, but it's, it's, it's very late and it's still very rudimentary um, and it doesn't inspire confidence. So given the current situation, you know, I think you know, Ch China has shown, Vietnam has shown it's possible to come out of lockdown if you have the virus under control, and the only way of controlling it are very extensive basic public health measures, which have been really you know, ignored and flouted by this government. There's been a lot of controversy this week about why that is, but increasingly it seems to come back again and again as, as scientists are worried that they are going to be carrying the can for the government who are constantly saying that they're only following the science. They're increasingly pointing back to the contribution of Dominic Cummings, plasma minus Boris Johnson, but this was essentially a policy driven by economics, the laissez-faire policy of allowing the virus to spread through the population, herd immunity, we, we, we don't have to recapitulate it all, but essentially they were more concerned about the economy than they were about the health of workers' lives. Um, if we are going to put the health of workers foremost, then we would have to say it's not safe to end the lockdown at this stage. I'm desperate to get past this, but we can't do it without knowing where the virus is and isolating it from the community in a safe way. And that's why really, at the moment, the government are basically saying, we're not gonna have completely a clear way out of lockdown until there is a vaccine. And how far away are we from a vaccine? One hears uh, so many uh, varied uh, uh, guesstimates. Uh, English universities talking about perhaps uh, July. Uh, but others talking about perhaps 18 months. Uh, what's your best estimate? I mean, there are teams all over the world, from the, from the Serum Institute in India uh, to the Academy of Military Sciences or Medical Sciences of the, of the People's Liberation Army in China uh, to Gla GlaxoSmithKline. So everyone is looking for this virus. Uh, so, uh, sorry, for the, uh, for the uh, vaccine uh, to this virus. I think the PLA in China are the most advanced in their testing. They're in the second phase of their clinical trials. So essentially they have a vaccine that they know is safe and they are, they're in the large second phase trial. They've got 500 people in it, uh, which they're trying to work out uh, whether it's 
efficacious. And if it is, then they'll go into a production, a mass production phase and larger trials over a large number of people. I think it's very unlikely our government will buy that vaccine from China or accept it from China. It is, you know, a feature uh, quite a negative feature of our response in Britain to this has been ignoring um, a lot of the uh, lessons of other countries, China, but not only China, also Korea, on the basis that our science is superior. But there's an underlying business reason as well, that if we, uh, our large pharmaceutical industries um, produce a vaccine which is viable, they'll make a great deal of money domestically and internationally from from selling it. So I think vaccines will be available. I think uh, the Chinese are likely to be there first, but many other people around the world will produce probably independently and will probably have several vaccines on the market, I imagine towards the end of this year. But these things have an extended timeline and it's hard to pin down exactly when it will be. I have seen people for the reason that, you know, medicine the selling of medicines, the pharmaceutical industry is such a multi-billion dollar industry. People are very distrustful and there's increasing kind of um, feeling of an anti-vax campaign even around this issue. But I, but I must stress that, you know, vaccines are effective, that um, a vaccine will protect millions of people who haven't had the coronavirus. But I think there's no way out of the fact that we need much better basic health measures of adequate testing adequate contact tracing and keeping those who have the virus protected and isolated from the community who don't. Put me down for a Chinese vaccine and include me in the demand for the nationalization of the pharmaceutical industry. Dr. Ranjit Brar, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Now let's take Joe in Detroit on the coronavirus. Go ahead, Joe. Hi, George. I'm a long-time listener, first-time caller. Uh, I really have to thank you for all your work on Syria. My father is a Syrian Arab Army veteran and watches your show on Al-Mayadeen. I wanted to talk about how all the discussion about the coronavirus possibly being a bioweapon has missed the point. Because, like you've said, it could very well be or it could be a leak. But either way, it's being weaponized against the working class of the imperialist countries and also weaponized against countries like Iran and Venezuela. In the United States, in a few months when people are going to have overdue mortgage or rent, utilities, car note, phone bill, internet, which is essential now if you have school children, uh, the state is going to ask us what we spent our Trump checks on. They've set up a whole uh, system of no expectations for any kind of social services since the Reagan and Thatcher era to the point where they just leave us waiting for uh, whatever they decide to give us. You know, in in the UK, they've given you Tom Moore, uh, who's a hero, as an alternative to actual funding for the NHS, which it really needs. Um, So I think that Uh, this weaponization of the coronavirus is going to be the greatest test of the working class in a long time, you know, whether we can organize and demand to have what is ours. Because in the United States, especially where I live in Detroit, they've already taken so many people's houses. They've taken the water out of people's houses. They've taken people's cars and things that are vital for their work and day-to-day life. And Um, With this crisis, they're going to do just the same and more so, you know. 
Powerful call, Joe, uh, from uh, Detroit. Let's go to Lamin in Islington. Go ahead, Lamin. Hello, greetings, Comrade George. Can you hear me? I can hear you, yes, thank you. Oh, great. First of all, I'd like to pay my um, uh, respects to you. Um, you are one of my whole, uh, you have your Hall of Fame. Um, you, you put your last Hall of Fame was Dennis, I can't remember. But Dennis Goldberg, times, yeah, but yeah. Dennis Goldberg, I have to look at him. But um, I'd also like to mention um, you, you were at the top of my list, along with um, the great Tony Ben, and uh, Kane Livingston, and even Jeremy Corbyn. Thank you. And um, your guest, uh, Brian Filling. Mm. Who, 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 yes. Great man, Brian um, Filling. You know, he's been fighting for, to my certain knowledge, half a century uh, for the people of South Africa, for the ANC against apartheid, half a century more. Uh, and he still looks quite spry. Anyway, Lamine, uh, please uh, go on because we've got other calls. Okay, okay, George. Yes, um, I, I look into Grant. Um, so many, so many questions. Um, um, I'd like to take you up on uh, the, the Dunn um, person. I'd yeah. like to say that um, Harry Dunn. Yeah, it, Harry Dunn. Um, I, I, I think that it's opened up a can of worms because if it was a normal Joe Blog who he who killed him, he would have nothing. But, but what, what, what seems to be seems to be um, coming to light is that. This person, first of all, they claimed um, uh, asylum, uh, di 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 diplomatic asylum. But, diplomatic um, immunity, yeah. Immunity, but I think um, this person is higher up on the security list. No doubt. So it's open. Uh, uh, absolutely it's open. no doubt. She was promoted in the White House uh, by Donald Trump when she returned home. Uh, this, uh, this woman is a senior CIA official. The question is, uh, what was she doing in Northamptonshire? What was she working on with her husband at an RAF exactly. base in Northamptonshire? I'd like to know that, wouldn't you? Exactly. Oh, oh, exactly. Your show has highlighted it. But, um, George, um, you, um, the NHS, um, the, the key workers, I'd like to say the, the, the police are... Wouldn't you say they, they are key workers? I've yes, seen, for, sure. Them, for sure. I've seen, I've seen them uh, um, arresting you know, some unfortunate people. Um, what I asked the police officer was that, um, where is your PPE? And he said, we, we don't have any. No, and I, said, I haven't seen one policeman with, uh, with the PPE, not one. And then I, said, then I asked him the question, are you vaccinated then? And he, 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 he laughed, he sort of smirked. So um, I, it led me to believe that maybe they know something that uh, maybe no. we don't know. No, I but think my, my, uh, you're reading too much into that. Uh, nobody's been vaccinated, there is no vaccine. The police have been uh, left to fend for themselves by the government, just like bus drivers, uh, just like tube drivers, just like delivery workers, like shop workers. They've all been abandoned George, by the state. But George, but George why, why we have no figures of police? We've, we've had all the police. I can actually ask uh, the deaths of uh, bus drivers, but why haven't we had any, any, any deaths of police officers? Uh, or, it's a good point. Uh, I don't know if there have been any, uh, but uh, I, I, I promise you, don't read too much into it. There's no conspiracy okay. here. The police have not okay. been secretly vaccinated. Lamin, thanks okay. for the call, because on the subject of vaccination, uh, Patrick is in San Diego, and he wants to uh, talk to me on this subject. Uh, go ahead, Patrick. 
How you doing, George? Um, I'm good. Yeah, I was just wondering. I was wondering how you can think that maybe a vaccine would work because they don't they don't even have an AIDS vaccine. Uh, no, they don't. And, uh, they don't have a, an AIDS vaccine, but they do have a smallpox vaccine, and uh, it wiped out from the face of the earth the small smallpox uh, scourge uh, as long ago as forty years ago. Uh, I've right, also I've, 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 I've also been vaccinated against measles. I've been vaccinated against all kinds of ailments, and so have my children. And uh, I believe the doctors rather than uh, people on uh, Facebook. Uh, where I last I, I, saw you, uh, or or I on uh, or on Twitter. Go on. The floor is yours. I, I had I had the H one N one vaccine, and I got shingles from it. I'm I'm 59, mm. so um, you know the thing that worries me is they haven't really even isolated what the COVID is, you know, and uh, the tests they're doing are mm. RNA and DNA testing on it. Mm. And from the, you know, how Americans are really conspiracy theorists, you know, uh, yeah. I, I heard uh, the last time I heard the guy from New Jersey, he had the same, uh, consp- I'm all the way on the West Coast. And he was on the East Coast a couple of weeks ago when he talked to you about some kind of conspiracy theory. And I'm like, wow, I, I was thinking the same stuff that he heard. So maybe they give us all Americans the same conspiracy. Maybe you've all had a job. Information. You've had a conspiracy <laughs> theory job. But anyways, you know what you know what happened is uh, I was in Elmhurst. I used to work for FEMA as a housing inspector, and in Elmhurst, where in Chinatown is where all the uh, New York guys are getting sick because a lot of the Chinese flew into Elmhurst, which is that area on 51st in New York. So I can see how that area was affected. But I've been in, I had uh, my my heart checkup, and I went into two different ERs because of the the uh, I was getting dizzy from the. The the, uh, the I just had back surgery, so that I went to the doctor to get my heart checked, and they pumped me full of medication to check out the power, the strength of my heart, and I started getting dizzy. So the next day I went to the hospital again, and I went into the hospital in the ER, and there's nobody in there. And then I went to a different hospital, there's nobody in there. And what I understand is they're calling everything uh, COVID. No, no, know? no. So they're, 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 parking, of, uh, they're parking everything else in order to deal with the uh, corona virus. Don't uh, don't mock the 108 British doctors and nurses that have. I'm not mocking uh, that. Died. I'm not mocking yeah, that. I'm saying, I'm it, saying it that all sounds the, like COVID mocking to me. Been, listen, Patrick. No, Patrick, listen no, a minute. Listen what? a minute. I understand why people in the United States and Britain have zero trust in politicians, in the state, and in the media. I understand it, believe me. After decades and decades of lying and cheating and twisting and murdering and invading and occupying and inventing uh, bogus pretexts for every kind of crime that they have committed uh, around the world. Trust me, who more than me uh, is there to understand that. I've been at the front line uh, in these battles. But because some things are conspiracies, it doesn't mean everything is a conspiracy. Now, these doctors and nurses have died. It's not, it's not uh, Alex Jones and Sandy Hook. Uh, they're not actors. Uh, they did die. Nowhere in the history of healthcare in Britain ever have 108 people working at the front line in the NHS and in our health service died within five weeks. This is unprecedented. I know people, young people, healthy people, who have died or are in comas now as a result of this 
coronavirus. So I have limited patience with those whose hatred of the establishment and the state has led them into a position where they are suckers for any cockamamie conspiracy theory that comes along. I'm going to Lee in Sheffield. Go ahead, Lee. Hello, uh, George. It's great to talk to you. I'm being a long-time admirer. Thank you, Lee. I appreciate that, brother. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah I, I was just... Um, actually, I haven't got anything to talk about current-wise, but I was just um, ruminating on... Uh, your, your book of the month the other way, the Vaggy Travels Pound. Yeah, yeah. Have you got a suggestion Which, for for the next one? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I read that book when I was about 14, 15 years old. Yeah. Um, and the other one, which it, it, it says so, and this book is such a, it says so much about the United States today, even though it wrote some time ago, and it's a, it's really, really well written with uh, The People's History of the United States by Howard Zinn. It's a fantastic book, and I had the very great honor of once being interviewed uh, by Howard. Uh, and uh, it, it is, I think, uh, a very worthy suggestion. So let's accept your suggestion. The book of the month for May is A People's History of the United States by Howard Zinn, that's Z-I-N-N. Lee, great suggestion. Last word to you. Uh, I'm just saying, it just, it just speaks so much even now as to the USA and even to this country about how, how things have uh, uh, transpired, even from, well, I, I just, I'm, uh, you, you know. No, uh, it's great, great, great suggestion. And it's taken on board. That is the book of the month for me, People's History of the United States by Howard Zinn. Thanks for that, Lee, in she Sheffield. Let's go to Chris in Colchester. Go ahead, Chris. Hi, George. Hi, man. Um, yeah, I, I just think that um, I'm seeing the danger with, with censorship on this issue of corona. Mm -hmm. um, because if we don't have a free debate about it, and, uh, I mean, what, what's the harm of getting someone like Peter Hitchens or Simon Jenkins on from The Guardian? Mm -hmm. Because otherwise, I'm seeing more and more people flock to people like David Icke. Well, uh, that, that... but who's censoring them, Chris? They're entitled to... Uh, the two people you mentioned uh, could not have bigger platforms. Um, Peter Hitchens is a columnist on the biggest newspaper in the country and has a popular Twitter feed on which he opines on this subject every single day. Who's censoring him? Uh, no, I would like him to come on your show. Uh, but I don't uh, want to hear that stuff. If you want to hear well, Peter exactly. Hitchens, if you want to hear Peter Hitchens, go to Peter Hitchens. Well, I no, never, I would, I, I, I've got no sympathy or time to argue with flat earth, tinfoil-hatted conspiracy theory Maniacs. I've, I've, I'm too busy to do that. I don't want to give them a platform to do that. Peter Hitchens is not a flat earth. No, he's not. No, he's not. I'm, no, I don't mean him. I'm not talking about him. I'm talking about Ike and, and Alex yeah, Jones and, uh, and their uh, like. No, if you want to know what Peter Hitchens thinks, you have thousands of opportunities to do so. As it happens, Peter Hitchens will never come on RT. 
He's, uh, uh, he, he's a refusenik. He has refused from the beginning of RT to come on any Russian media. You need to ask him why. Uh, but uh, uh, Simon Jenkins, we've asked him many times onto the mother of all talk shows, and he has never accepted. So I'm not shunning them. Uh, both of them are estimable uh, gentlemen, uh, but uh, they are... Uh, Patrick Hennison? No, I've, I've blocked him. I'm, I'm, I'm ashamed, I'm embarrassed uh, to have really? ever had anything to do with him. He's a conspiracy theorist crank. I don't want anything more to uh, do with them. Chris, thanks for the call. Here's Adman in Bradford. Go ahead, Adman. Oh, hi, George. It's Adnan. How are you? Adnan, nice to hear from you. Unfortunately, the people taking the calls uh, did not write your name down properly. I beg your it's pardon. Not, it's not a problem. I have that problem every day. Okay. Um, George, you've got your hands full with the conspiracy, conspiracy theorists today, haven't you? I have. Uh, uh, every day. It's the bane of my life. <laughs> God bless you all. God bless you all. George, I just wanted to, to speak to you with regards to obviously what's going on with coronavirus and... Yeah. Um, really post lockdown and, and, and the effects that it, it, it'll have on on the masses really i mean in terms of business i think that's all something today where the aviation industry will probably go bankrupt by 50 percent so half of the airlines that we know out there will go we've under. got too many airlines anyway don't we adnan we probably have we probably have but the the, the knock-on effect of that george tells us something doesn't it um, you know, our people, if 50% of airlines go out, that's people's travelling behaviours change. I think that's um, going to change anyway, mate. Uh, uh, yeah, I think yeah. the days, the so. days of uh, mass tourism are over. Uh, if you're mm -hmm. buying shares, buy them in the British coastal resorts. I think you're going to see well, a renaissance uh, of well, British coastal resorts George, so. and Highland, uh, Highland uh, holidays and Yorkshire yeah. Moors and, and, uh, and the Cotswolds and so on. I'm perfectly sure of that. Yeah, I might just take you up on that. It's a good, uh, it might just be a good bet. Yeah. But yeah uh, Quickly, buy a boarding house in, in Blackpool if you've got the readies, uh, because uh, <laughs> Blackpool, with a bit of investment, can still be a marvellous uh, holiday. Uh, but the, yeah, the but days when millions of British people were going to and were allowed to go to mass holidays at cheap uh, flights uh, in, in, uh, in planes that were packed like sardines, I think that's over. I really think it's you think, over. You think that will even happen, be allowed to happen locally, though? I mean, even right now, a lot of places have just got signs up blatantly on the end of the road saying, tourists not welcome. Um, I mean, with, with, with lockdown, whenever it comes down to whatever point it comes down, for example, restaurants, mm. they'll never be able to open to full capacity. And that's going to have an effect everywhere. So surely even coastal areas, people are not going to flock to them as we, as we once used to see them. Too. No, I, I agree. I agree. I think we haven't even begun to uh, compute uh, the changes uh, to our mm. economic and social and cultural life uh, that this is all yeah. going to uh, bring. Adnan, thanks yeah. for the call, my friend. Uh, best wishes to you and to Bradford. Let's go to Mohammed in Washington State in the United States. Uh, go ahead, Mohammed. What would you like to say? Hey, George. Um... I've been a fan of yours for a long time. Thank you, my friend. Thank uh, you. I'm 24 years old, and uh, right here in America, ever since this coronavirus thing, um, most of the states, I think, yeah, most of the states here are shut down. 
And I was just wondering, like, well, you, you, your state is uh, pretty uh, badly affected, yeah? Um, my actually, well, my state was actually one of the worst states in the beginning, and then New York like overtook it. But yeah. right now, we only have like I think nine thousand cases. Uh, no, nine thousand. I think uh, I'm not really sure. I don't mm. remember. No, I, I mean it was uh, particularly bad around Seattle. Yeah, yeah, it was. It was actually really bad in the beginning. But I was wondering, like, since uh, everything is shut down, right? Um, don't don't you think if everything is shut down, they're losing millions and millions of dollars, right? So every single day, they're losing millions of dollars because no one's going outside to buy stuff, like going to malls, shopping, and all that stuff. And they're pumping in money every day. What do you mean that will affect our economy? Of course, uh, it will uh, very profoundly uh, affect. The first point that has to be made is maybe we were spending too much time and money in malls uh, to begin with. Maybe we developed an economy, uh, an idea of an economy that uh, was based upon endless and repetitious consumption of things that we didn't actually need, but were encouraged to actually want. Uh, so. Uh, that's my first point. My second point is that which we actually do need, uh, we'll still need uh, once this is over. Uh, there's no reason why, unless you accept uh, the logic of capitalist economics, which I do not, uh, that there needs to be a mass recession, uh, that there needs to be a depression, uh, because I'll still need food, I'll still need clothes, I'll still need my car, I'll still need my petrol, uh, my kids will still want their pocket money to uh, buy uh, football cards uh, and so on. Uh, the spending will continue to happen. Uh, but if you uh, accept uh, that uh, everyone must end this uh, with, a, with a yoke of debt around their neck, owing uh, rent uh, to landlords, owing mortgage payments to banks and to uh, the finance houses that help them to uh, buy their home, uh, then, then if you accept that, you're going to uh, enter a new period where whatever money people earn, they're going to have to pay debts uh, with a considerable part of that. I don't myself accept that. I don't accept the right of private companies to throw thousands, hundreds of thousands of people uh, on the dole. If the companies can't keep the people employed, let's take over the companies and run them in the public good rather than for the private profit of uh, a small number of individuals. I'm sorry, the time is late, uh, Mohammed. I can't give you a more fulsome answer than that uh, because I've got to go to Wayne in Cheshire on the football season. Wayne, welcome. Hi, everybody. Hi. Um, I, I wanted to, this is specifically about the football lockdown. Yeah. Now, personally, I think there's a massive silver lining to this because I've never known so many male friends of mine to politically wake up and they're questioning their own lives, they're looking around, and in my lifetime, I'm 50-odd, this has never happened before. So... Interesting, think, very interesting, yeah. And I also think one of the reasons why the government is so 
well, throughout the throughout the world, they want to get sport going. It's because, like the dark entity Margaret Thatcher said, while they're watching football, they're not watching us. I'm and sure I she didn't say it that. It's uh, apocryphal, but it's a very good one. Uh, and it's true. Uh, but I'm dying for the circus to return, aren't you, Wayne? Um, me and my son, we, we are Liverpool supporters. Well, you, you especially, yeah. Yeah. But on balance, I must admit, this positive from, from this awful thing that's happened, I'm really happy about it. And people are finally pulling their heads out. Because a lot of my friends, especially male, their absolute lives are consumed with football. I like football to escape this reality sometimes. But I don't let it take over my life. But, you know, if this is what's happening, maybe it's a byproduct. Well, uh, blah, that's blah, blah. a very, very powerful call. Uh, Bill Shankly, your uh, old manager, of course, said that some people think football is a matter of life and death, uh, but it's much more important than that. And, of course, uh, he was joking that isn't the uh, case. But it's pretty damn important. Wayne, thanks for the call. Brian in Glasgow, probably the last call. Go ahead, Brian. Hi, George. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Uh, I was wondering about my own concerns about the pandemic. Yeah. Uh, and whilst I'm aware that obviously we all have to be socially responsible and put that beyond our own individual wants and needs, mm -hmm. uh, we predicted a pandemic which hasn't actually occurred. Now, set aside being proactive for an issue that may or may not arise. But well, uh, do you know the definition of a pandemic, Brian? Uh, well, I'm looking at figures more than definitions. The, well, the definition of a pandemic is an epidemic that has spread across the whole world. So it is a pandemic. There's pandemics of poverty, there's pandemics of injustices. None of them have caused the economic halt to solve them, including 800 children every day who die from dirty water. Where did we all say, let's hope the buses? Me, I've, I've, been, I, 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 I've been saying it... Uh, all my life. Uh, what's your point? I know you have. Th what's your point that that we should we should be unmoved uh, by the numbers of our own doctors and nurses, for example, that are dying at their uh, stations because there they're are dying. other crimes. Well, they are dying yeah. unless you're denying yes. that they're dying. No, oh, George, I'm not doing any of that. What I'm saying is the way we have handled it, the approach reflects many things, including an inadequacy to take uh, steps where we can isolate the vulnerable and not to isolate them and ourselves to their detriment. Ah, I've heard it all, Brian. I've heard it all. I hear it ad nauseum all day, every day. Get your tinfoil hat back on and come back uh, next week and we'll have another go. Uh, why don't you? It's been marvellous uh, for me. Uh, I hope it was for you. And if it was, come back next week at the same time in the same place. I've been George Galloway. This has been the mother of all talk shows and you have been a marvellous audience. Stay safe, social distancing.